Welcome to the Dinner Party Download. This is your icebreaker. Okay, here's a joke. Why do women wear makeup and perfume? I don't know why. Because they're ugly and they smell bad. Duh. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan, and from APM American Public Media, this is the Dinner Party Download, the culture show that helps you win this week's dinner parties. You just got a very ironic joke from Tavi Gevinson, feminist, actor, and editor of Rookie Magazine. That'll help break the ice. As long as people know you're being ironic. Yes, do make sure. Uh, later, we will speak with British thespian, writer, and icon Stephen Fry. He stars in a new Broadway production of Twelfth Night. And also on deck, our conversation with renowned chef Daniel Boulou. Plus, author Sam Harris tells us the truth about lying, and top chef judge Gail Simmons tucks into your etiquette questions. But first, as at any dinner party, we start with small talk. All week long, you've been hearing these headlines. The Obama administration is giving health insurance companies the option of extending individual policies for another year. Typhoon Haiyan has displaced over half a million people. U.S. Airways and American to merge, creating the world's largest airline. Now for a story you might not have heard. We are speaking now with Rehan Harmanti. She's executive editor at the food culture magazine Modern Farmer. Rehan, what story are you going to be talking about this weekend? I'm going to be talking about a story that involves love and walking. Oh. This, so it's not doesn't take place in L.A.? <laughs> Alas. <laughs> it's a New York story. Okay, let's hear it. Well, basically some researchers at uh, Seattle Pacific University have conducted a study that concluded that men, when they're with a romantic partner, significantly slow down their stride. Oh. Not for any lady, just for just for the romantic partner, you're saying. Yeah. And interestingly, women, um, when walking with a romantic partner, barely change their stride. <laughs> Typical. Hmm. Wow. <laughs> um, but is there a reason why guys slow their stride? I mean, do they just want to be close to the person they love? Or is it like, I no longer need to exercise because I have a girlfriend. Yeah. <laughs> they don't need to get any slimmer. Well, first of all... Men naturally walk faster, which is something that I personally don't 100% believe in, but the study says they do. But the researchers suggested that there could be an evolutionary basis for this. Okay. How so? Um, well, it seems that it has to do with energy expenditure. Um, you wouldn't, in the hunter-gatherer period, you wouldn't want women walking too much and losing too much energy, which might affect negatively their ability to conceive. They wouldn't have enough energy left over to, to actually conceive a child. That's interesting. Or carry a child. So this is why people say to watch television. Television when they get together, yeah. long-term relationships. It's actually, there's an evolutionary basis for Breaking Bad and yep. the, the success of Mad Men. Oh, yeah, no, definitely. The more TV you watch, the more children you have. That's a scientific fact. Science has never been so interesting. Rayhan, <laughs> thanks so much for the small talk. Thanks, guys. And now let's slowly walk to cocktails. Once again, we tell you something that happened this week in history, then give you a fitting drink to serve along with it. It's like history is a skating pond, but beneath the ice is booze. <laughs> that seems dangerous. Careful. For grown-ups only. First, the history. This week back in 1979, some in the U.S. government experienced the apocalypse. Almost. Mm. Michelle Philippi tells the tale. In the annals of bad mornings, this has to take the cake. It was 3 a.m. on a Friday, and White House security advisor Zbigniew Brzezinski was awakened with eye-opening news. Defense computers were warning the Soviet Union had launched hundreds of nukes at the U.S. of A. America's Minuteman missile sites were put on alert. 
Fighter jets took to the air, and so did the so-called doomsday plane, from which the president would conduct a retaliatory strike. Brzezinski didn't even wake up his wife, so she could die peacefully in her sleep. But then, officials checked radar and satellite intelligence. Turns out, no nukes had launched. At all. U.S. forces stood down. The whole incident, to the brink of Armageddon and back, had taken under 10 minutes. The Pentagon's explanation for the computer error? That training software simulating a Soviet attack had been mistaken for the real deal. How? They weren't sure. Said one commander, quote, the precise mode of failure could not be replicated. When the Soviets learned how close we'd come to nuking them over a non-existent attack, they were not happy. But subsequent improvements to warning systems didn't prevent false alarms. There have been at least three more, the last one 18 years ago. That time, Norway launched a science rocket designed to study the Northern Lights. Russia mistook it for a Trident missile and considered nuking us. So that was the rather discomforting history. Now for a drink to go with it. On the line is Nate Windham, bartender at the Blue Star in Colorado Springs, Colorado, very near the command post known as NORAD, which is one of the sites where defense computers made their scary mistake. Nate, what drink did that story inspire? So what I did was I thought about if I'd gone through that situation, either if I was the guy at NORAD or if I was Brzezinski, how would I have handled that after I finally hung up the phone and everything was relieved? And so my very first thought was a quick shot of something. (laughs) But at 3.10 in the morning, I thought a quick shot of whiskey was just a little too much. (laughs) And here in Colorado, we're really well well known for our Palisade peaches that come off of the western slope. And so every year I do a peach shrub, which is a way to kind of preserve fruit and vinegar. It's like vinegar. It's kind of vinegar infused with fruit and fermented. That's right. That's right. So what I did was a shot of a whiskey that's actually made right here in Colorado Springs from Distillery 291. They do a great Colorado rye whiskey. Mm. So I did a shot of that with a little bit of Palisade peach shrub and a couple of dashes of bitters. And that's just shaking really, really hard over ice because I would imagine that your nerves are at end <laughs> yeah. and you're ready for something. You're, you um, don't actually have to shake it. You just hold it in your trembling hands. That's right. That's right. <laughs> and then you strain that into a rocks glass with no ice and you down it all in one tug. <laughs> and that makes you feel a little better that you just witnessed almost the apocalypse. That's right. <laughs> Pretty awesome. But so I do I have to ask you though, NORAD is one of the main command centers in the event of an attack, right? Yes. Does it strike you as scary that everyone knows where it is and that you live right next to it? (laughs) A little bit from time to time. I always wonder, you know, but, you know, I grew up during those nuclear years and I always said that I'd rather be at ground zero than anywhere else in the country. I guess that's true, especially if you've got, you know, a bar full of liquor to calm your nerves. That's right. And Brendan Nate calls that the three to seven minute cocktail. Oh, yeah. So named because Brzezinski estimated he had three minutes to verify we were being attacked and then four minutes to decide how to respond. That is incredible. Yeah. I can't even decide what to order at the bar in four minutes. That's, this is why we're not security advisors. That's one of the reasons. But uh, people, we can advise you to head to dinnerpartydownload.org. You will find all our recipes there. And now, the guest list, in which an interesting person lists some interesting things. And today our guest is writer and filmmaker Davey Rothbart. 
He's a contributor to This American Life. He also edits and publishes the wonderful magazine of found objects called Found. With Andrew Cohn, he co-directed his debut documentary, Medora. It's in select theaters and on iTunes now. Here's Davey to tell us about it and his list. My name is Davey Rothbart, and Medora is about a small town in rural Indiana, Medora, Indiana, that's really fallen on hard times. You know, the factories have shut down, and their basketball team, the Medora Hornets, rarely win, if ever. They, the season before we got there, they got 0-22. Most sports documentaries, they're about you know, trying to win a championship. This is a team just trying to win one game. They're winners in my book. They're losers in basketball. But there's something beautiful about just striving for success. So here's my list of some other beautiful losers. Number one is Mark Borchardt from the documentary American Movie. There's a few documentaries that have really shaped me and my filmmaking aspirations. Dark Days, Hands on a Hard Body, and American Movie. And American Movie is about this guy, Mark Borchardt. He's an aspiring filmmaker in a blue-collar suburb of Milwaukee. And this film, directed by Chris Smith, uh, shows Mark trying to make a film. He hasn't gone to film school. He, he's really just you know scrapping together crews from his friends, but, but he's incredibly passionate. This is ridiculous. We started May 94, man. We've got every F-stop known to man in the film. <laughs> and right now, we gotta take action, man. We gotta go out to that field, put those scarecrows in on a killer slant. You know, they've been there for years. The farm's burnt down. It's gonna be the opening shots for Coven, you know? It's gotta be one of the funniest movies I've ever seen in my life. But he's so driven. And Mark's story is really a story of, of, of striving for something that you, you may never get. You may ne- he may never complete this epic film that he's set out to make. But just the act of trying and of being such a creatively passionate person is, is noble in itself. So anyway, we're out here today to try to redeem it, get these establishing shots for Coven and, you know, do what you can. You know, we're in America today and we're ready to roll. Also, these are both movies, Medora and American Movie, about small towns, towns that have seen brighter days. And there's filmmakers, there's people who are passionate about art in, in places that are not San Francisco and New York and L.A., you know, but are towns like Menominee Falls, Wisconsin. The drive to create art is not limited to a, you know, a certain type of person. Number two on my list of beautiful losers is a few select rappers. Rappers can be broken down into two types of rappers. Those who brag about how much money they make and those who would candidly admit that they're flat broke. My favorite rappers fall into the latter camp. There's a couple guys, Petey Pablo from North Carolina, he, he really talks about living life in a hard scrabble small North Carolina town. He's, he talks about, you know, trying to buy gas with the change in your ashtray. He talks about paying a light bill. You know, that's not stuff you usually hear from rappers on MTV. I understand how a lot of rap is aspirational, and I understand why it's fun for people to live out a fantasy, but it's also strange for me that's what's resonating with people. It seems like people like Petey Pablo or, or another favorite rapper of mine, D-Shot. These are my types of losers. And the third one on my list is William Waterman Sherman, and he's a character in probably my favorite book of all time, which is called The 21 Balloons by William Penn Dubois. This is a children's book that came out, I think, in the 30s or 40s. It's about William Waterman Sherman, who his dream is to sail around the world for a year in a hot air balloon. 
finally it's launch day and he lifts off and before he knows it he's crash landing on on the remote desert island of Krakatoa but what he discovers is is that there's a community of people from around the world who have quietly been building their own sort of utopian civilization and the, the cool thing about it is you see that you might have some grand plan and that might totally unravel you might have lost your way you might have lost what you were hoping to gain and yet Sometimes that leads to some other adventure that's more valuable. And I think that's true of these kids in Medora, Indiana, who, you know, they are setting out to win a basketball game, but what are they really gaining? They're gaining this teamwork, this camaraderie. They're learning life's big lessons. Writer, publisher, and now filmmaker Davey Rothbart co-directed the lovely documentary Medora, which is on select screens and on iTunes now. And about that children's book, The 21 Balloons, we should note the island the protagonist crashes on, Krakatoa. Oh, man. It's volcanic, and the book is set in the days before the island erupts and is basically vaporized. Yeah, so if you want to raise kids with a sense of the fleeting impermanence of beauty, there you go. That's your book. All right, folks, coming up, British wit Stephen Fry analyzes Shakespeare, The Afterlife, and Turkey Day when the Dinner Party download continues. Welcome back to the Dinner Party Download, the show that helps you win your dinner party. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano. Coming up, Top Chef Judge Gail Simmons adjudicates your etiquette questions. But first, it's time to meet our guest of honor. Yes, and today it's British comedian, actor, and writer Stephen Fry. He started out as half of the comedy duo Fry and Laurie and went on to conquer pretty much every branch of media there is. <laughs> he starred in TV shows like Black Adder and Jeeves and Wooster. In movies like Wild and Sherlock Holmes' Game of Shadows, mm. he won an Emmy for his documentary work, he hosts a quiz show, and he even rules on Twitter, where he is followed by over six million people. And he, he invented a special drug, I heard, which allows him to never, ever sleep. That's apparently well. so. This week, he made his Broadway debut in the Shakespeare comedy Twelfth Night. When we met in his dressing room, I asked him to verify his Twitter bio, where he describes himself as a, quote, actor, writer, and prince of swimwear. That, that more or less covers it. I can't think of anything else I can do. Is there a Prince of Swimwear in England? I know there's an Earl of Sandwich. <laughs> no Prince of Swimwear. And if there were, I would come last. It's ironic. So uh, in this rendition of Twelfth Night, you play Malvolio, the kind of straight-laced steward to the noblewoman, Olivia. And uh, the New York Times gave it a great review, and they called your performances Malvolio felicitous. It's felicitous for your Broadway debut. Like, this was a great way for you to come to Broadway. And I'm wondering if, if, do you agree? Does Malvolio feel like the right fit for Stephen Fry? Yes, I suppose so. It suits uh, certain elements of me, if you like. There's a gravitas in Malvolio, a pomposity. Uh, um, you strike me as less puritanical. Uh, yes, I'm certainly not that. He's described as, the, uh, as puritanical sometimes. And uh, Maria says, oh, the devil he is. Puritanical. He's anything. He's anything that will please people. Uh, so his Puritanism is there simply, I think, because he wants to show himself as superior to the other servants. You once said that you admired Shakespeare because, although he appeals to intellectuals, at heart he's a cakes and ale guy, a populist. Absolutely, very much so. And I think a lot of the aristocrats and kings that he presented to the people 
uh, of course, uh, they admired and were fascinated because they thought they were getting a window into a world they would never other imagine. I mean, simply the colours on stage. You went back to Elizabethan England, the only colours ordinary people could afford were earth pigments, which were very dull indeed, and only the very rich could afford to have imported jewels and, and dyes that were fantastically expensive, indigos and ultramarines and aquamarines. And so it was a bit like going to a Busby Berkeley musical in the, in the Depression. You were looking at the amazing life of amazing people, but you were also getting a moral tale out of it, and, and you could go away feeling satisfied that you weren't a prince or a king, because princes and kings have pretty rotten lives. Malvolio has a famous line that he reads. It's actually written by Maria, who's playing a prank on him where he says, some are born great, some achieve greatness, and some have greatness thrust upon them. Does that line apply to Stephen Fry, the writer or actor? (laughs) Achieve is always the one. Um, There's that uh, horny old joke of someone bumping into Horowitz uh, walking down 6th Avenue, and they say, uh, how do do I get to Carnegie Hall? And he says, practice. But I um, I had the great good fortune to be expelled from a large number of schools when I was a boy. Uh, Four or five at least couldn't handle me, and ended up in prison. And uh, just the right time, I think, I decided that criminal life wasn't for me. You spent three months for, for credit card fraud, if I'm correct. Right, yes. Um, I could have turned into uh, James Spader in the blacklist, one likes to think some archmaster criminal, but um, instead I uh, thought, no, I'll, I'll go to university, and the university I always wanted to go to was Cambridge, the University of, of Shakespeare's great rival Marlowe and Kidd and many of the other um, playwrights of the time, and I sat down to study very, very hard, and particularly Shakespeare, in fact. I, I loved writing about Shakespeare. I got the top scholarship to Cambridge in Shakespeare and the top first-class degree in Shakespeare, and I thought I would stay and grow tweed quietly in a corner <laughs> writing about Shakespeare, but instead um, I made the misfortune of meeting Emma Thompson and Hugh Laurie and Tilda Swinton and other such people, and we, we did comedy instead. And you were quite a success with in various projects on radio and, and both on television and books. The word renaissance man comes up when people talk about you. Uh, you're an actor, writer, game show host, etc. My, my question when I was looking over all of the things you've done is just simply, how do you, how do, you do it? Do you have extraordinary self-discipline? Are you a great time manager? How, how do you... I have a, a magnificent PA. <laughs> Which is a production assistant? Yeah, uh, yeah, well, personal assistant, really. And she looks after my diary. She's the Martin Borman of my diary and keeps away things that would distract me. But it's ultimately, uh, it's curiosity it's, that drives anybody. I, I'm always astonished when people say, oh, I uh, haven't got time to do this or I haven't got time to do that. People got this. Time is absolutely and infinitely elastic. Mm-hmm. You say, oh, try saying that to a mother with a child of two, but I know mothers of a child of two who have simultaneously taught their child of two Russian and taught themselves Russian. You know, there's plenty of things you can do and I think possibly the greatest human sin is lack of curiosity. You did a documentary, Stephen Fry, The Secret Life of a Manic Depressive, yeah. and you've described yourself as bipolar light almost. Yeah. Do you think that figures into why you do so many different projects? I do. I think that and atheism, which is the most optimistic of all belief systems you can have. Not that atheism is a belief system, but if you believe in a God and an afterlife, there is not much point 
in worrying about this life. It's not much to do in it. You're going to have an eternity, apparently. And the idea that this is sold as a good thing is, to me, absolutely incomprehensible. But the idea that we have one life that we can enrich and fill, and then it's over, like a long, beautiful sleep, and you're never conscious again, is fantastic. But to spend eternity, even with what? Angels? Usually white crystal rooms with strange white things breathing on you and hideously tasteless music. Don't you get to meet, like, you know, Frank Sinatra or Noel Coward? I met Frank Sinatra. Just these people that have come before. I mean, heaven could be amazing. You meet them anyway. That's what literature is. That's what history is. That's how you, I've met Shakespeare by being in a Shakespeare play, by reading his plays. Uh, to actually, to meet the man and spend my lifetime with him, I, you know, I'd get to know what, what his farts smelled like. You know, I mean, it's just, in the end, it, it, you know, a life is enough. All right. Well, we have two standard questions that help us get to know our guests while they're still alive. And the first question is, what question are you tired of being asked in interviews? <laughs> I suppose the question I get most bored with asking is, is what I'm going to do next? Because I never know. Does your PA know? No. I, I mean, I know what I'm going to do next the next year because that's laid out. But what they say, is there any ambition? Is there, is there some, something you haven't done that you want to do? And I, I can't think of it, really. Uh, I, it may happen. I mean, lucky you. Do you feel lucky than that? If immensely lucky. Yes, just the other month I went up uh, the Dolomite Mountains in, in, in blizzard conditions uh, uh, on the border of Italy and Austria with Bear grills and... Uh, had to do the most terrifying physical things I've ever done. Uh, and you, you feel very satisfied at the end of that. Okay, our, our second question is, tell us something we don't know. It can be something about you that you haven't discussed in interviews before, or it can be an in interesting piece of trivia. Well, it's an interesting piece of trivia. It's one that I used to share and laugh about with my dear friend, and it's a way of memorialising him, not that he'll ever be forgotten. But Gore Vidal, around this time of year, we always used to pour over the history books in which he had this astonishing collection. And he would say, it's extraordinary, isn't it, this Thanksgiving, the ability of the Americans to mythologise themselves. He said, if you asked 90% of Americans what we were thanks giving thanks for, it would be escaping religious persecution. In fact, the exact reason the Puritans left Plymouth to go to America was in order to be free to persecute. And until America understands that, it will never understand itself. And I'm not saying this as a Briton who wishes to defend Britain, but uh, Puritans were not allowed to beat up Quakers. They weren't allowed to set fire to Catholics. In Britain, you're saying? In Britain, yeah. It was a place of religious tolerance. And if you read your Nathaniel Hawthorne, you will read terrible tales of Puritans hunting down, burning, savaging, torturing Quakers and other nonconformists of slightly different nuanced sects. This is exactly what I think would happen at a Gore Vidal Stephen Fry Thanksgiving dinner party. <laughs> yes, I know. It sounds cynical, but it's not, I promise you. <laughs> Actor, writer, and as it turns out, occasional polemicist Stephen Fry. <laughs> He's on Broadway now in Shakespeare's Twelfth Night. And Rico, I'm guessing Fourth of July wouldn't have been fun for those two guys. <laughs> Something tells me. Indeed. And uh, ladies and gentlemen, if you happen to be Puritan, please address your negative comments directly to Stephen on Twitter. Chances are you already follow him. All right, folks. Well, according to Stephen Fry, Shakespeare's plays can teach us about morality, but it is quite another thing to actually live morally, which is why we have our etiquette segment. Yes. Each week, you send in your questions about how to behave, and here to answer them today is Gail Simmons. 
She is a judge on the cooking competition show Top Chef, which is in the midst of its 11th season on Bravo. Dang. Amazing, right? It's yeah. pretty amazing. Blows my mind every time someone says that. <laughs> She's also director of special projects at Food & Wine magazine, so if they need to assassinate someone at yep. Bon Appetit... I'm your girl. You're like the CIA. <laughs> That's it. I'm a sniper. <laughs> and she is author of the memoir Talking With My Mouthful, which came out last February. You stopped by back then. I did. Gail, it's nice to I have did. you back. Thank you. It's great to be here. And I have to say, you've been working on something. New project. Since... I have. A couple things, but one really big thing that's growing every day. Yes. You're building a human. I'm building a human being in my belly, I guess. It's like making a sandwich, kind <laughs> of, but just a cell at a time. It's similar to making a sandwich. I'm eight months pregnant. Yeah. Well, congratulations. What are you most kind of looking forward to seeing this kid taste for the first time? Everything. I mean... I hope to God this child is a good eater. <laughs> what about I, trans fats? Uh, except tra- you're right, not everything. <laughs> okay. Fine. I'm just checking. Not everything, but a lot of things. I mean, the thought that I will have this like blank canvas child to just, to just push food into <laughs> yeah um, is kind of exciting. I mean, I don't. know. I would be more excited about you have a potential sous chef and yes. garbage remover from the yes. kitchen. I'm building an assistant. Yeah. Nice. I mean, my husband is a pretty good assistant, but he can be a little bit. He can talk, unlike right. this he kid for the first back. few years. Yeah, I was going to say that I was jealous of this child because he's going to eat very well, but now I'm not so jealous. <laughs> now you're really happy that you're not. They're also doing the dishes. So you're in the midst of Top Chef Season 11, yes. which is taking place in New Orleans. And the city's known for these classic, you know, Cajun mm-hmm. Creole dishes, mm-hmm. jambalaya, etc. But what else has surprised you about the food down there besides the New Orleans hit singles? I have to sure. say especially post-Katrina, because the city was so devastated. The chefs who remained and the chefs who have sort of come up since then in the last six or seven years have brought with them this sense of evolution. Katrina's almost acted as a catalyst for for the new. Young chefs who are taking those classics, the jambalaya and the Sazerac and the gumbo and the sure. red beans and rice, classic New Orleans dishes, and, and modernizing them and using really local, interesting ingredients, top yeah. quality ingredients, and, and making them their own. How do you update red beans and rice? I don't know. <laughs> like, there's just cool, like, there's just cool flavors, cool spices. Black beans. You're using, no, yeah. wait, no, red beans. I know. Yeah. Red beans. They'll kill you if you don't use Red I have a theoretical question. Mm-hmm. If you didn't like Cajun food, because it has a distinct kind of flavor profile, but this is your sure. job and they ask you, hey, guess where we're going to New Orleans? You just have to pretend you like it? You know, I don't know. I like to say, um, like, I'm sort of a perfect omnivore in that mm. way. That has never crossed my mind. There's nothing mm. I'm not excited to try. I don't know. You're... Quite frankly, you're an idiot if you don't like Cajun food, so that's that. <laughs> um, All right. Well, it was that kind of, of sharp <laughs> insight that we're hoping you'll bring to these etiquette questions. We've got a few for you. Uh, Great. A number of them you may not be surprised are food-oriented. Sure. Here's something from Melissa in Tampa, Florida. And Melissa writes, she starts you with a scenario. You are eating dinner at someone's house, and you are served undercooked chicken. Do you ask to have it cooked again? Do you eat around the edges? Do you not eat it? Or do you eat it and take your chances? Hmm. Here's what I would do. It also depends on whose house you're at. If you're at your best friend's house, you're at your mom's house, yeah, you have them cook it again. No problem. Don't try to kill me again, mom. Um, If you're at a stranger's house, right, and you were trying to be polite, I'd probably eat around the edges. Yeah, I like that she offered that. Yeah, I would probably have a few bites. But aren't you digging a deeper hole for yourself? Then it's like, hey, why aren't you finishing your meal? Right. No, you can always <laughs> you know? say, because you eat other things. Yeah, but what if you're the you're the expert 
so right. this is different from Melissa, but if you eat around the edges, everyone else is, this might must be good. They eat the whole thing. They all get sick. <laughs> well, here's the thing about undercooked chicken. Certainly you want to be careful. And salmonella and other foodborne illnesses do exist for sure. For sure. But it's still rare. And if it's really undercooked, that's an issue. And you should absolutely yeah. tell the person in a nice way that is not your food is terrible, but is, you know, I'm just worried this is a little undercooked. I think it's kind of pink. Cook yeah. it a little longer. I actually think that when cooking chicken at home, the opposite tends to happen because people are so yeah. petrified that they overcook right. that it's always overcooked. Yeah. And then, then sure. it's hard to swallow because it's so yeah. dry and terrible. You, and you don't need to do that either. All right. So, Melissa, be careful, but uh, don't get so paranoid that your host has to destroy the meal for you. Yeah. So our next question comes from Roseanne. She sent it via Twitter. Roseanne writes, when a guest brings wine, are they expecting us to serve it at that dinner? Husband and I disagree on the subject. Hmm. It's a classic, and I don't know the answer to it. That's a great question. You know, I don't think there's a set rule. I think you should always go expecting either to happen. Mm. If you're going to bring a wine and it's you know that that's been your role, like they've told you to bring the wine or whatever it is, or you get there and they don't have a ton of wine, yes, like absolutely open it, drink it. Um, But I've been in plenty of of cases where I've brought wine hoping we would drink it um, because I kind of (laughs) wanted to drink it myself. I just sprung for the nice wine. Yeah, Um, Yeah, this isn't a gift. This is for me. Right, and then they have tons of wine and they put it away, and that's fine too. Um, I, You know, my husband and I sometimes disagree on this because we'll bring like a really special bottle of wine somewhere Mm -hmm. and they don't open it and not that it's up to up that we yeah. want it but you kind of think like oh we brought this to share with everyone yeah. um, but I think you have to just go in with no expectations and let the host uh, lead depending on what they've planned so there's I mean, no like rule of thumb I, mean, I don't think there is and if there is I haven't heard one because here's what can also happen you can get somewhere and bring wine just as a gift without being asked yeah. to bring it but the yeah. person has prepared special Pairings. pairings. I've got a suggestion, though. I mean, can you just, if you brought in something that you really think people just have to try and you kind of want to experience that with them, can't you kind of maybe pre-dinner say, listen, this may not go with dinner, but you guys have to try this. Yes, you know? absolutely. I've had so many times Definitely. where someone's come over with a great bottle and said, this is so great. I, we, we really have to open this during dinner. Uh, I really want everyone to have a taste. And that's great. But I I think that's actually the dividing line. It's what happens beforehand. If they tell you to bring a wine, expect to drink it. But if you're just bringing a bottle of wine to be nice, because that's kind of customary, you're on the fence. So don't spend more than $13. (laughs) Because who knows? Two buck check. But I think that if you're just bringing a wine because it's your gift... You don't have expect no expectations it. either way. Yeah. And I think it's in the host's hands. Yeah. Or you could just keep guzzling all the wine until they get to your exactly. wine. Exactly. You know what I <laughs> Which mean? Which I've also done. <laughs> Not pregnant, but yeah, I've also yeah. done it. Understand, understand. <laughs> all right. Here's our last question. It comes from Biebs in Los Angeles. Hi, Biebs. I don't know. Maybe she works <laughs> at the BBC. Biebs asks, if you cook something for guests and it is a fail, is it better to acknowledge or pull a Julia Child and try to pass it off as fine? Hmm. If it's a real fail, I say acknowledge it. Make light of it. Own it, right? And then you all can get back in the kitchen together and do something else. Oh, yeah. Own your mistakes. I've certainly had dinner parties where I made something and it wasn't as planned. Now, generally, I think we all tend to be harder on ourselves Mm. than our guests are going to be. I mean, you know, how many times have I also been to a dinner party and someone is serving something and apologizing for it? And I'm like, I don't care. This is perfectly great. I'm happy just to be invited to your house. Like, what do I care? That's that's also because you're Gale, though, right? They really want to impress you. True enough. But I think people, it is very personal. And people. Uh, That's a good point. It's the community. It's like the idea of a dinner party, there's two parts there's the food, okay? But it's really about community and having people over. Absolutely. Now that I know your answer, expect a dinner party invitation soon because I can just burn something and I'll be nice about it. You'll be nice about it. Great. (laughs) to know. 
Gail Simmons, thanks so much for telling our audience how to behave. Thanks, guys. Food expert, Top Chef judge, and expectant mother, Gail Simmons. Yay. The 11th season of Top Chef is underway. And to send us your etiquette questions, head to dinnerpartydownload.org and click contact. All right, coming up, Michelin-starred chef Daniel Boulou shares his guilty pleasure. Country artist Julie Roberts talks about good wine and bad decisions. And author Sam Harris reveals he cannot tell a lie to anyone. I was happy to explore the, the consequences of just honestly talking to a customs official about drug use. When the Dinner Party Download continues. Welcome back to the Dinner Party Download, the show that gives you an edge in your weekend conversations. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano. Later, we hear from country musician Julie Roberts. But first, it's time for the part of the show where we learn about food, the main course. That's right. So, Rico, when you picture a renowned chef, what comes to mind? A uh, guy with spiky blonde hair yelling at people. <laughs> okay, that's one type of renown. Being honest. I picture a French guy trained in the best kitchen since he was 14, painstakingly creating deep sauces at revered restaurants. While yelling at people. Don't well, forget. Yeah, maybe sometimes. <laughs> anyway, Daniel Balloon is that classic French chef. Mm. He's best known for his eponymous three Michelin star restaurant in New York City. He now has a beautiful book out, also called Danielle, that includes some of his recipes. Mm. I, of course, tried to arrange a tasting of some of them, but mm. alas, that wasn't possible. Ugh. So when we spoke, I decided to conduct a virtual tasting with him. And the first thing I ordered was venison consomme with black truffle. Do you think there is any other ingredient who are so rare, so luxurious, and so delicious? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> that is true. It's, it's, well, it's, almost, it's so rare that I don't know if I can afford enough well, nobody life. can afford truffle until you taste truffle and you feel, you know, it's... Yeah. For me, I mean, I wish truffle was cheaper, but then it'll be just like potatoes. <laughs> Everybody could eat it. Well, it's interesting you mentioned potatoes because you talk about this very kind of humble truffle dish you made once out of a baked potato and truffles. That was uh, when I was chef at Le Cirque. We had a customer who was coming there every day. And mm -hmm. he was always eating a baked potato with chive and nothing else. And I say, God, this baked potato is boring. And <laughs> I, I made him one day a baked potato with white truffle, and he went crazy. It's only two ingredients, but it's amazing. Didn't you make this dish for your father once? Oh, yes, at Christmas. Oh, my God, you know, some old story. Yeah, at Christmas, we, were, we had a candlelight dinner. Uh -huh. And he saw me working in the kitchen, and he saw me splitting the potatoes, and he saw me preparing the things. And so when I serve it at the table with the candlelight and it was white covered with white truffle and he couldn't tell if that was the skin of the potato. So he put it all on the side <laughs> and he started to scoop the inside and he found it very good. But then when we started to clear his plate, we realized he did eat the truffle. <laughs> <laughs> he put all the truffles, the expensive, tasty morsels to the side and just yeah. focus on the potato. Yes. <laughs> he was like, Daniel, your cooking's gotten much simpler. <laughs> Yeah, well, my, my father never had truffle in his life. You know, you can get confused sometimes. So I want to move on to my next item, if, if I may. Yes, please. Um, so I'm going to move on to the wild hare a la royale. And this oh, dish... Oh, you're really on a game trip. <laughs> I am on a game trip. It's autumn. I figured this was appropriate. Absolutely. And the preparation takes hours. First, the wild hare gets boneless totally, and then... After we make a stuffing with pork and foie gras and truffles and onion and the liver. Really light food here. 
Yeah, well, you know, it's about the wine you're going to drink with it after. So that's why okay. it's important. And you braise it in the red wine sauce for hours and hours very, very gently until the sauce reduces and really get super gamey and rich. And sometimes we put a little bit of cocoa powder, mm. a little bit in the sauce to keep a good tartness, uh, a little bit of tannin inside. And this dish was was originally, some say, created for Louis Fourteenth. Yes. What, what is that about? Well, I'm sure they were hunting around the Versailles there and finding a lot of wild hair. Some suggest he liked this because he had bad teeth and the meat is so well, soft. Yeah, of course, it's fork tender <laughs> because it cooked for hours and hours. And yeah. uh, it's it's delicious. All right, so that's great. So I have my entree. I have my truffles. I'm going to leave the game behind. Yes. And I'm going to, for dessert, I was thinking of having the chestnut Mont Blanc. Ah, I love it. So the idea came from uh, that little cake in France we have often in the winter. And, and what's, what's very good is you stay within the season, uh, mm, which you. I like, yeah. because uh, now we're talking chestnut. Yes. And the chestnut Mont Blanc, it's about the, the vanilla, the chestnut, and uh, the wonderful different combination of chestnut from the mousse to the crushed chestnut, uh, chestnut paste. And the, the candied chestnuts in the middle, it takes up to three months to candy those chestnuts? Yes, because what you do is first you choose the most beautiful chestnut there is, mm-hmm. and the chestnut get peeled, and then uh, the, you put them in a, in a syrup. You bring them to a boil and you let them rest. Then you bring them to a boil and you let them rest. And you do that for days and days and days (laughs) until the chestnut slowly cook and slowly absorb the sugar. And it's it's a very, very long process to confit chestnut. You're famous for your desserts and your your pastry chefs that have have worked for you. One of them has been on our show a couple times, Dominique Ansel. Oh, yeah, Mr. Cronut. That's right. He's Mr. Mr. Cronut now. Have you... He hates to be known just for... (laughs) The cronut. <laughs> yeah, no, Dominique worked uh, five years with us at Danielle yeah. and uh, very talented. Have you ever eaten a cronut? Yeah, I had one actually last week again. What did you think? A little sweet? It's a little sweet. It's a little rich, but yeah. it's a craze. <laughs> so you travel a lot. You, ha- you have restaurants around the world. Do you have any guilty pleasure foods like the cronut? Like is the- if you're at the airport, do you get a nachos or a cheeseburger? Is there something no, that... Na- nachos, I'm not too... Uh, Oh, the best about. guilty pleasure I had was, you know, when you take chili con carne and you put it in a bag of Fritos. Frito pie? Yeah, Frito pie. <laughs> I mean, to me, anytime, any day, a Frito really? pie is my favorite thing. But right in the bag. Are you serious? You've done yeah. that? Yeah. This oh is good goodness. because it's all about <laughs> the spice, the crunch, the kind of like soft with the beans and yeah, oh, the hot, so good. The hot. And, <laughs> Where I mean, did you discover that? Uh, well, tailgate, you know, in New York, we tailgate with the giant. <laughs> <laughs> and wow. We, and, and there's always somebody uh, in charge of Frito pie. And what wine would you pair with some Frito pie? Frito pie? Uh, a chilled beer, yeah. <laughs> I don't think you want to food wine. <laughs> Acclaimed chef and restaurateur Daniel Boulou. His new book is called Daniel. Sadly, it does not include a recipe for Frito pie with truffles <laughs> because that high and low would be amazing. I love imagining him at a tailgate party. You think that he lays down a white tablecloth in his car trunk? <laughs> totally. <laughs> He's, he, he brings his own light beer sommelier. Of course. He serves consomme and football helmets. The, the pepper grinder looks like the sticks you use to measure first down. Yeah, it's it's great. something else. 
now time for Chattering Class, the part of the show where we are schooled by an expert in some dinner party-worthy topic. Our topic is the telling of lies, and our teacher is Sam Harris. He's a neuroscientist, skeptic, and author of the bestseller The End of Faith. His new work is perhaps less controversial but equally provocative. It is called Lying, and in it he makes the philosophical argument that one should pretty much always tell the truth. And Sam, welcome. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. How did the concept of lying become so important to you? Well, uh, my interest in this actually precedes my interest in science. I was uh, a freshman at Stanford and just happened to uh, find my way into a class on ethics. And the, the single question that organized this course was, is it ever okay to lie? Everyone comes into this conversation more or less convinced that there's some subset of lies that are necessary and even noble. These are generally called white lies. And what we found in this course was that it's immensely difficult to find white lies which survive scrutiny. So basically, this course was a machine for convincing people that something approaching truly radical honesty was the way you wanted to live. And, you know, that happened to my brain when I was 18. And it's only now that I'm writing about it. All right. Well, I want to talk mainly about this radical truth you just mentioned. Mm-hmm. Um, you have many examples of situations where people tend to think that it's okay to tell a white lie. How about I run a couple of them by you and you tell me the arguments for telling the truth? Sure. All right. Number one, a friend asks you to dinner and you say you're too busy to go even though you're really not. Well, What's it, the harm there? That That kind of communication allows us to never confront the fact that we have these people in our life who want something from us that we don't want to give, say, and we're maintaining relationships that we're actually, we actually don't want, or we don't want them at the, at the level that they're, they're demanding our time. But on and, the other hand, you don't hate that person. You don't want to turn them off. You never know when that person might be important in your life. Right. Well, so, so that, but if you were forced to be honest in those situations, you would, would discover that you are this sort of ulterior person, this person who's kind of keeping people in the odd chance that they might be useful to you at some point. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's an interesting th- thing to discover about yourself rather than just realizing that this is a person who you want to see once a year as opposed to once a month or once a week. All right. Well, here's here's kind of the the mother of all white lies, which you bring mm-hmm. up in the book, saying no, no matter what, when asked, do I look fat in this dress? Right. So many people view that question as really not a question. It's just <laughs> what is being really being asked is tell me that you love me or yeah, tell me that right. you think I'm beautiful. If you believe you're actually in that situation where there's a subtext that you're supposed to respond to, well, it's not a lie to do that. But in many situations, there is a question being asked here, and information is useful. It could be that one dress looks much better than the other. That, you know, what is more flattering to her? It could be that your wife, that she wants to lose weight, you want her to lose weight, you think she would be happier if she lost weight. There's a conversation about weight that if, if you're always eliding this inconvenient fact, no one is ever forced to realize that both of you are noticing something that, that actually can be changed. That's true. Uh, but uh, I mean, are you married, by the way? Do you yes. mind if I ask? Now, obviously, my wife now knows not to ask me if she doesn't <laughs> want my actual opinion of something. But the converse of that is that when I give her my favorable opinion, she knows I'm telling the truth. People oh, don't realize how they devalue their opinions when they lie just to be pleasant to people. All right, well, here's the most jaw-dropping personal example you give in Mm. the book. On your way back from a journey to Nepal, a customs officer, I guess in the airport, asked if you had done any drugs on your trip, and you said? Uh, I said yes. 
So are are you nuts? <laughs> well, that's well, so, crazy. So, yeah. Well, so no, it, it would have been crazy if I had been carrying drugs back to the states. <laughs> then obviously, I you know I would have been forced in a defensive way to lie. Well, this is a good question though. That, yeah. So you would have been forced to lie there. So there are occasions where you probably should lie to say for self-preservation. For instance. Yeah. Well, I, I view lying as a least violent form of self-defense. So if if you're in a situation where you would punch someone in the nose or shoot someone with a gun, then you're also in a situation where you would lie to them defensively. And, and I think mm, that's I that's fine. So I'm not like Immanuel Kant, who thought you should never lie no matter what the circumstance. Mm. But in, in this case, going through customs, I was happy to explore the, the consequences of just honestly talking to a customs official about drug use and became a, I mean, this, is, this happened over 20 years ago, and it's, it's one of the more memorable conversations I've ever had. I'm sure. Because we talked for... 15 minutes about all the drugs I had done and he was he was genuinely interested he hadn't done he hadn't done many I drugs can't so can't imagine it and, and yet you know he, he's he's searching my bag as you might imagine with you know exquisite fastidiousness because he still has to play the game of customs officer but yeah. the net result was we both had fun in this conversation and <laughs> what you find in many cases is a willingness to be honest produces very novel and kind of life affirming connections in situations where you don't have to be paranoid that the truth is going to harm you. All right. Sam Harris, clearly the most honest man in America. Thank you very much. <laughs> it's been a pleasure. Author, neuroscientist, and skeptic Sam Harris. His new book is called Lying. And Brendan, I was thinking, maybe it's time we tell people that actually our voices are created by computer software invented by the IT guys at American Public Media. But Rico, that would be a lie. Of course you're right. <clears throat> Excuse me, of course you're right. <laughs> All right, ladies and gentlemen, we've talked Shakespeare with Stephen Fry, French cuisine with Daniel Boulou. The only element missing for an epic party is some music to play. And for that, we turn to country musician Julie Roberts. She has a new album out called Good Wine and Bad Decisions. Mm the reverse name of my memoir. <laughs> it's the first album to be released on the legendary Sun Records label in decades. Sun was, of course, the former home of Jerry Lee Lewis, Elvis Presley, and Johnny Cash. Here's Julie with some picks. Hey, y'all. This is Julie Roberts. I have a new record out right now called Good Wine and Bad Decisions, and here is my dinner party soundtrack. Uh, my first song would be Nora Jones, Turn Me On. Like a flower Like a light bulb in a dark room. It's one of those songs that I listen to while I put on my makeup because it will help me feel like I'm looking sexy for the party. I'm just sitting here waiting for you to come on home and turn me So right now I'm picturing my friend, actually her name is Anita's house, and she has like this formal dining room where she'll set up candles, and she has all these fancy plates of everything she's made. And then we're kind of roaming from room to room with the music loud, just kind of relaxing, gossiping, listening to the our favorite music, and eating. I'm just sitting here waiting for you to come on home and turn.
There's a Leanne Womack song called I'm a Hate Myself in the Morning that I would play at a dinner party. And the, the hook of that song is I'm a hate myself in the morning, but I'm going to love you tonight. Ain't it just like one of us to pick up the phone and call after a couple drinks? Leanne Womack is definitely a current country artist. Um, she's more traditional bass country, which is what I love um, and what I grew up listening to in South Carolina. Instrumentation-wise, there's uh, simple production. Fiddle. Fiddle is what we call it in country music. And um, my favorite instrument is still guitar. But really just very simple. I mean, no program drum beats. It's just uh, traditional country music. One of my other favorite artists is Patsy Cline. Probably because of my mom, because that's what she listened to. Sweet Dreams is one of my favorites. sad. I love sad country music. I love sexy and I love sad. Sometimes when you're drinking wine and listening to music, you want to feel those emotions. So to me, it's like combining all of those, it'll connect with somebody there. If I wanted my friends to play a song of mine at our dinner party, it'd be good wine and bad decisions. I love singing the first verse. It don't matter what dress I put on, we both know it won't stay on for long. And these heels, all they're good for is walking through your door and laying on your bedroom floor. I mean, every time I sing it, it makes me smile because I'm like, okay, yeah, I've been there. Probably a lot of people have been there. I will sound terrible. I sound like a terrible person. I'm just honest. A dinner party soundtrack from Julie Roberts. Her new album is called Good Wine and Bad Decisions. And ladies and gentlemen, that's the dinner party download for this week. Mm. You made a good decision to listen. Indeed. And don't be sad. You can catch us all week on Facebook or on Twitter, where our handle is DinnerPartyDNLD. Jackson Musker is associate producer of the show. Our web PA is Brittany Martin. And our interns are James Delahousie and Davey Kim. Engineering this week from Ravi Carmen. Special thanks to Trent Wolby. Our executive producer is Peter Clowney. See you next week. Bon appétit. <laughs>